Welcome to the Disciple Dare, a four-week series to challenge you to discover what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. More info on the Disciple Dare can be found at ViennaSDA.org. Pastor Jennifer Deans shows you through stories from the Bible how living the dare will give you hope in troubled times and joy in life. In this message, my day in court. So we just got finished studying in Daniel chapter um, 8, verse 14, that the end of the 2300 days, the sanctuary is cleansed. And we know that that represents the day of atonement for the Jews, and it's symbolic, so it represents what's happening in the heavenly sanctuaries, which is the judgment. So what does that actually look like? What does that mean for us, all of us who are here on this earth? If the judgment is happening now, what's going on? It was a day that was pretty normal. You know, I went out to the market, and you know, today it was just one of those days where I had a little bit of extra time. And so I decided to swing by the temple before I went home. And as I was nearing the temple, I saw a crowd gathering. And where there's crowds, there's usually something interesting going on. Since I had free time, decided to go over and see what was going on. As I got closer, I noticed a man was talking. And I, you know, as he was talking, I was just enthralled by what he was saying. His, his messages seemed to just really connect with me. And in the middle of all he's talking, all of a sudden I hear this commotion behind me. Something's happening. And I turn around, and the Pharisees, they're dragging a half-naked woman. And she's screaming, and she's hollering all the while, trying to grab a blanket that she's holding and cover herself. And she's crying, and they throw her in front of the man and say, We caught this woman in the act of adultery. What are you going to do about it? What should be done to this woman? Should we stone her? And the man, he handled himself so differently. It was just so weird. Instead of responding, instead of doing anything, he did the strangest thing I've ever seen happen. And he takes and he, he kneels down, and on the dust of the pavement steps, he begins to play in the dirt. And others were just as curious as I were, so we're all trying to make our way over to see what he's doing. And the Pharisees are getting frustrated, and the woman is crying, and she's sitting there huddled in a ball. And they said, we asked you a question, Jesus. What should we do with her? Should we stone her? You know, the laws say that we should stone her. This man, who apparently is Jesus, peeks up from kneeling on the floor, and he said, um, all right, go ahead and stone her. But the person who is without sin, you start. And then he goes back down, and he begins to write in the sand, in the dust on the pavement. And as as he's writing, slowly the Pharisees are so frustrated, they don't know what in the world this man is doing. They, beginning with the oldest, begin to walk over and look at what he is doing. And then almost instantly, after they look down, they just stand up and they walk away and they leave. And one by one, all of the Pharisees go, and they walk and they look. And I look the best I can, but I can't see anything. I don't know what they saw, but... 
and they were all gone. And so now I'm wondering, well, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and it does tell us in the law that if you're caught in adultery, that you do need to be stoned. But then again, the Jews don't have right to stone people, so what's this man going to do? What's this teacher going to do? And the rest of the crowd was, was in a very hushed state. They're, they're listening, and they're watching, and the woman is there shivering and crying and trying her best to cover herself with her blanket. And Jesus looks up with her, looks up at her, and in a soft, tender voice, he says, Woman, where are your accusers? And as if she hadn't noticed what had been taking place, she looks up with tears running down her face, and then she, she looks around, and she, she stands up, and she looks, and she says, I don't know. They're gone. And he says, I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And almost as if she didn't believe what she was hearing, she stands there frozen in time for a moment, and then she slowly makes her way through the crowd and disappears. What just happened in this story? The story is found in John chapter 8. And it's one of the stories that I love to read and I love to see because it is what we so often do as humans. We judge. We judge other people. And it's really, really easy to pick on certain people because their sins stand out really bright. And so we can pick on the people who are doing some blatant sins, and so we like to judge them and we like to hold ourselves up. And so we find a woman. If you turn to John chapter 8, page 864, this woman is much like Job. Do you remember the story of Job that we talked about a few days ago? What had Job done wrong in order to have all of his wealth taken away and his kids killed and boils? What had he done wrong? He had done nothing wrong. He ended up in the crossfire of a war between God and Satan. And God knew he was strong enough to handle it, so he let, God, he let Job go through it. Well, not that this woman hadn't done anything wrong, because obviously she was having an affair. But we, we learned something very interesting about her. Turn with me to John chapter 8. And we're going to start reading, starting in um, verse 1. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again to the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. We find a situation where a lady has been judged. She's been trapped almost so that the Pharisees can use her so that they can trap Jesus and get him to either say something against their customs where they can take him to trial with the religious leaders of the day or 
to say something against the religious, um, the Roman government, and so they could take him to trial with the Romans. Either way, they thought they had had a surefire, bulletproof plan on how to get Jesus. And this poor woman is caught in the middle. How do we know she's caught in the middle? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. That's page 164. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. And we're going to read verse 22 starting. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. It says, If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Suppose a man meets a, a young woman, a virgin, who is engaged to be married. If he has sex, will intercourse with her. If this happens within the town, you must take both of them to the gates of the town and stone them to death. The woman is guilty because she did not scream for help. The man must, be, must die because he violated another man's wife. In this way, you will purge evil from among you. What's different about what the law says and about what happened in this situation with this woman? Where's the man? Where's the man? So the Pharisees, they're doing something. They're trying to hold court with Jesus, and they're, but they're just doing what's convenient for them. They had to find a way to trick Jesus, and so they set this up. We don't know how, but it implies, because if she'd been caught in the act, like you, it couldn't be circumstantial evidence according to the Jewish laws. It had to be the act. You had to catch the act. So if she was caught in the act, obviously there was someone else in the act with her, and they were both supposed to be stoned. But he is conveniently missing. And... You know, that, that, you know there's been lots of speculations about who this man was, there's, and we're not necessarily going down that road right now, but we know that he was, the Pharisees had set this up because they were trying to trap Jesus. And here comes the woman who's caught in the middle, and she's being judged. Now, what does the court look like for her? Who are her accus- accusers? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are her accusers. And not only that, but they drag her out in public. This shows us another reason they are trying to trap Jesus, because they drag her in public where there's a crowd. If they had found somebody, they could have come to Jesus with the same question. They could have gone before the tribunal and gotten an answer without dragging her along. But they're trying to try Jesus in the court of public opinion. And so if Jesus says something wrong against their laws or against the Romans, they've got tons of witnesses. They've got the crowd. And so she, her, her accusers are the Pharisees who drag her in. But it's also everybody else who's watching there and going, yeah, well, the law says that's what's supposed to happen. But what's he going to do? Is he going to... So in this trial that she's going through, where is she? Where does this trial take place? Look back in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 2 says, But early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. So where does this trial take place? In front of the temple. 
Who is the judge? Jesus. Jesus is the judge. She lucked out that day in court in the random list of judges she could have gotten. She got the best one possible. And what is the outcome from her day in court? Does she get justice? No, she gets mercy. She doesn't get justice. Justice would be when you're speeding down the road and the cop pulls you over, giving you the tickets. Mercy is when he sees you obviously frantic and crying and says, I'm letting you off with a warning. It's not something you deserve because you were actually speeding. Was she actually sinning? Did she actually, according to the law of the Jews, deserve to be stoned? Yes, she did. And so, brought before the judge, she receives an undeserved pardon. How is that fair? Why does it work that way? It's another day, and this day you're at work, going about your job as usual, being annoyed by the coworker that irritates you, and, you know, trying to stay as focused as possible, doing the tasks at hand, and suddenly, out of nowhere, there's a commotion. And in the commotion, you realize that there's this evil-looking person, and he is coming straight towards you, and he says, Bailiff, take this person. Without any warning, without any reasoning, you are handcuffed and you are dragged off. You are dragged into court, and then before the court can even go into session, this person begins to rant and rave. Do you know what they did? I have a list. And on that, he pulls out from his pocket a list. And as he opens the list, it seems to go on and on and on and on and on. And he begins to read through the list of stuff. And as he's reading through stuff, he's reading stuff that you thought nobody knew about. Stuff that you struggle with. Stuff that you did a long time ago. And the more he reads, the more shame you feel. And you realize before you notice it that you're standing there shaking and you're cowering. Everything he said is true. And this evil being says, You know, judge, you told us that the wages of sin is death. This person obviously sinned. Look, I have just shown you proof. And he's gone through and everything. And the more you look and the more you hear, you just want to melt into the floor. You try to get away, but you can't move. For some reason, you can't leave. You didn't have a choice. You didn't want to be there, but you ended up there anyways. This is your day in court. The Bible tells us that all of us get a day in court. So, what does it look like with our day in court? First of all, who is this evil being who drags us up to the courtroom? Who is this person and why? What is it does he have against me? What is it that he has against you? Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, page 414. 
Job chapter 1, page 414. Job chapter 1, verse 6 says, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. In Job chapter 2, verse 1, it says the exact same thing. One day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Who is this Satan? We talked about him the second topic we talked about. He used to be Lucifer. He was in heaven, and he had this war with God. And just like the woman, and just like Job, we've ended up in the crossfire of a war between good and evil, between God and Satan. And Satan is trying to use every single person he possibly can, just like he was trying to use Job, to prove that God is unjust, he's unloving, and he's unfair. So if he can take us up to heaven and if he can prove that we deserve sin and that God gives us mercy, he can prove that God is unfair because that's not what he did for everybody. And so who is this? Satan. What kind of adversary are we up against? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, page 966. 1 Peter chapter 5. 996. I'm a bit dyslexic sometimes, sorry. First uh, Peter chapter 5, 996. We're going to start in verse 8. It says, Stay alert, watch out, for your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him, be strong in your faith, Remember that Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. This tells us that our accuser, Satan, he, um, he's like a lion, prowling, looking for someone he can devour. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. He attacks every single one of our Christian brothers and sisters because he is going after God. Just like the Pharisees were going after Jesus, our accuser, Satan, is going after God, and he's using us as the pawns and the tools to get to God. He could care less if we're saved. He could care less if we're not. He just wants to prove God is not loving. He is not fair. It tells us in Ephesians that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the unseen world. Our accuser is someone who's so much stronger, so much more powerful than us, so much bigger than we could ever be. So where do we stand in this courtroom? What does it look like for us? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, page 941. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we all stand before Christ to be judged. We will receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So where does it stand for me? Where does it stand for you? Can I skip my day in court? How many of us have to go? All of us have to go. All right, 
Well, then, um, let's look and see. Let's look and see what else it says about us. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, page nine, um, 790. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Matthew 12, verse 36, page 790. And Jesus is talking because it's in red. And he says, um, And I tell you this, you must give an account on the judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. How many of you have ever just been randomly talking and said something you probably shouldn't have said? Every single one of us. Oh, but but if, you're, if you're in court here on earth, um, you would get assigned a lawyer. And something that an earthly lawyer would do for you, would he would try to, to make you look as good as absolute possible. And so what an earthly lawyer would do is it, it would be like if this lady in John chapter 8 had a lawyer, the lawyer's opening arguments would have been something like this. Okay, this is an unfair trial. The law states that the man and the woman caught in the act of adultery, they both need to be stoned. This is biased. It's unfair. It was actually his fault. And so they would start putting the blame on somebody else. Is that a fair assessment of what our judicial system does? They try to make you look the best that you possibly can and put the blame somewhere else. And that's exactly what sin offers us. In Genesis chapter 3, remember when we talked about Adam and Eve? What happened when God was walking in the garden after they had sinned and they were hiding from God? And God says, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? They said, yes, we did. We're sorry. No. Uh, Adam's like, it's her fault. Wasn't mine. It was her fault. And she's like, no, it wasn't my fault. It's the snake's fault. And it's a ploy. Now, does this ploy work in God's eyes? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 64, page 604. Isaiah chapter 64. Not only do lawyers try to, you know, pawn the blame off on somebody else, but they try to, well, they're really not that bad. You should see all the time they volunteer at the local hospice. It's, I mean, the, the way that they use their talents, I mean, this is a good person. They messed up one time. You have to give them leniency. You have to give them grace. We learned last night that it's not about what we do. In Isaiah chapter 64, verses, verse 6 says, um, we are all infected and impure with sin. We display our righteousness, our righteous deeds. They are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall. Our sins sweep us away like the wind. I've mentioned this before, but the righteousness, when Isaiah's talking like filthy rags, he's talking about menstrual rags. So our righteousness looks that good to God. Which is not good at all. And so a lawyer's tactics here on this earth get us nowhere. Because the law is, Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's it. 
no grace. Leviticus tells us that blood has to be shed for sin because the wages of sin is death and the blood is the life of a, of a being, of a person. So death has to follow. We have to give up our blood. We have all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We stand in court guilty as charged. There's something different about our case when we're up in court than there was for this poor woman who was thrown before Jesus. This poor woman wasn't assigned a lawyer. She wasn't given her, her, her right. She wasn't given the court-appointed lawyer. You know in America that, that we have the right to have representation. Well, in our day in court, we have that right. So let's see who our lawyer is. The person that we can allow to represent us, or we could always choose to represent ourselves. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, verse 2, page 970. 1 Timothy, verse 2. First Timothy, verse 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5, sorry. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. Right, wait for it. This is who our lawyer is. There's only one person who can be the go-between between us and God. The man, Christ Jesus. And here's why. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message of God, this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. So as we are standing there trembling before this horrible, demonic Satan, and he's rattling off a list that we know so well to be true about every single time, no matter how small or how big, that we messed up, that we sinned, the times we coveted, the times we lied, even white lies, and we're sinking behind the background, someone comes up to you and says, you have an option. Would you like a lawyer? You're like, I don't know if a lawyer's going to help me. I've messed up really bad. Who is this lawyer? And so they go through this, this list. This, this, the lawyer, that, his name is Jesus. I'm, I'm telling you, you want this guy as your lawyer. He's won every single case he's ever tried. How could that be true? Well, let's look a little bit more about this lawyer. What else does it say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? It's page 1,000, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. Okay. So, don't sin anymore. Can any of you guys do that for me? Stop right now. Can I get a promise? <laughs> Fortunately, John figured that wasn't going to work too, and he kept writing. But if anyone does sin, which I fall in that category, um, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. And in Hebrews 
chapter 9, verse 24, it tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And so um, you're standing there and you're trembling. You know so well that the accusations are true. You stand charged and guilty. And it's written all over your face. They have all the proof they need. And that person comes up to you and says, you have the option, you have the, you have the right to have counsel. He is the only one that can reconcile you to God, and he's won every single case he's tried. And he sits, he's the one sitting right up there in the judge's seat with the judge. And you're like, I'm not sure. It sounds too good to be true. I don't deserve it. I don't, I don't know if I can do that. No, but there's even more. Not only can he be your lawyer, get this. He's a judge. What are you talking about? He can't be my lawyer and my judge. Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, 983. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. All right? So this tells us that he's sitting there at the throne with God in heaven. That doesn't mean just because he's sitting in the judge's seat that he's the judge He can't be my lawyer and my judge at the same time. It just doesn't make sense. Well, then turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Acts chapter 10, verse 42, page 893. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Peter is talking to Cornelius. God sent him there to talk, and he's going through the history of Jerusalem Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Peter says, And he, being God, ordained us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. All right, so God told Peter that God appointed whom? Jesus to be judge. And so you're standing there and you're, this is just too good to be true. This is not, you couldn't possibly have a lawyer, the person who can reconcile you with God, who's won every single case he's tried. And not only that is, can he be your lawyer, but he's also the judge? Now, that's a, that just doesn't seem like it works. How can you be the lawyer and the judge? Imagine the, the courtroom and The opening session starts, and Satan charges you, and he goes through, and all the while, your lawyer, Jesus, is objecting. But, but, that was covered. That was paid for. But no, and Satan goes through the list, and he keeps going through the list, charging off things, and your lawyer keeps objecting. No. And finally, the gavel comes down, and as the gavel comes down, you, you realize your lawyer has disappeared. How could he have disappeared in this time? And then you look up, and he has run around, and he's jumped up on the judge's seat, and he's now sitting in the judge's seat, and he's the one who hit the gavel. And he says, that's enough. 
it's, it's been taken care of. And Satan's like, how has it been taken care of? And that's where something even greater comes in because this court-appointed lawyer can not only be your lawyer and your judge, he can be your substitute. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, page 983. Hebrews chapter 7, page 983. Hebrews chapter 7, 983, starting in verse 24. It says, But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who came to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. He did this for their sins first. And then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. It says that our lawyer not only is God's court-appointed judge, but he also can be our substitute. The law says the wages of sin is death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Turn the page over. It says, Just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with their sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. You're standing there, in heaven's courts. And what is happening? As we read last time, we're in heaven's courts, and God is there, and millions and millions of angels are serving him, and all of heaven is watching, and they've heard everything you've done wrong. And just like the crowd with the sinful woman, they know God's law is the wages of sin is death. You have a choice. You've been offered a lawyer. This lawyer will be an advocate for you with God. He stands there in the courtroom, and as Satan is making accusations about you, he raises his hand and says, I object. That has been paid for. I paid for it with my blood. And when the gavel comes down, you see your lawyer has run up to the judge's seat, and he says, that's enough. We've had payment in full. And Satan demands, where is the payment in full? And as he is standing there on the judgment seat, he opens his hands, and you can see the nail prints in his hands, and he said, I paid it with my blood. They accepted me as their lawyer. The judgment takes place in heaven. That's what's happening right now, ever since 1844. And all of us have a choice. And there are two groups of people. The first group of people are those who accept the lawyer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 936, tells us what happens to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 
15, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. What does that say? How do you win your case in court? Is it by being like the rich young ruler and doing all the commandments and following all the rules? No. Even if you have the relationship with God that begins to produce the fruits in line with his law, that's still not what saves you. What this tells us is everyone who belongs to Adam with their sinful nature by themselves deserves death. But everyone who belongs to Christ, who sides with Christ, who says, I want him as my lawyer, I want him to represent me, you, you will get eternal life. What happens to the other group? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43, page 587. Isaiah chapter 43, page 587. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 25. It says, Yes, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins from, for my own sake, and I will never think of them again. This is God talking. He says, But if you want, let us review the situation together, and you can present your case to prove your innocence. Right? So God says, I can, I can blot out your sins. You've got to come to me. I can do that. But if you'd prefer not, let's just review your case. And here's the case you come up with. From the very beginning, your first ancestor sinned against me. Um, all your leaders broke my laws, and that's why I have disgraced your priests. I have decreed complete destruction for Jacob and shame for Israel. What do we get when we stand by ourselves? what do we get? Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. That's page 1020. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. When we represent ourselves, our accuser stands justified. Satan is right. Romans tells us all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standards, and the wages of sin is death. And when we try to stand on our own, that's what we get. But we're lucky. The story is told of a little boy who wants a puppy so bad, and his parents say, you've got to, we're not buying you a puppy. We need to know that you're going to be responsible enough to take care of your puppy, so if you can earn the money to pay for a puppy, we'll let you buy one. And so he does everything. He does odd jobs. He does, he works all summer long. And finally, he has the right amount. And he goes to the farm where the puppies have just been born. And he walks up, and 
the person in charge of the farm calls the puppies and the mother dog comes running and all the puppies come running too and they're just everywhere and he's standing there and he's looking not sure what puppy to pick and then around the corner of a barn comes a little tiny puppy dragging one of its legs behind him and the boy says what's wrong with that puppy and the guy says I think we might have to shoot him he was born crippled He won't amount to much. The mother's not letting him feed. He's going to die soon anyways. And the boy says, that's the puppy I want. I'll pay the full price. And he gives all his hard-earned money to the man. The man says, no, I can't let you take a puppy like that. How can you take a puppy like that? He's crippled. He'll never amount to anything. You won't be able to run and play with him. And with that, the boy pulls up his pant leg to reveal his leg brace. He'd had polio, and he said, that puppy needs someone who understands what he's going through. And that's the lawyer we've been given. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, turn with me there. It tells us that Jesus is the crippled boy and we're the crippled dog. In Hebrews chapter 4, page 981, verse 15. It says, this high priest, and if you looked up to the paragraph before, it says, Jesus, the Son of God. This high priest, Jesus, the Son of God of ours, understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The judgment is taking place, even as we speak. Matthew tells us in chapter 24 that when Jesus comes back, he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And if we try to stand through the judgment by ourselves, we will end up with the goats and we will end up in the burning lake of fire. You have a choice tonight. Your day in court is coming, and we don't know how soon. The dare tonight is can you admit, can you recognize that you stand condemned in heaven's courts? I dare you to allow Jesus to stand in your place as your substitute on the stand for you as your judge and as your lawyer. You can't lose with that combination. Jesus has never lost a case. And I dare you to believe that with Jesus, you can stand worthy before the courts of heaven. We don't know when the judgment's going to end. The Bible never tells us. We know it's taking place, and we all have a choice. My choice is accept the lawyer. And if you do, you receive the same undeserved pardon that the woman got when Jesus was riding in the dust. I believe that when he was bending down, his finger was writing pardon. 
You've been listening to The Disciple Dare from Pastor Jennifer Deans. We hope this message encouraged you as you learn to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you'd like to learn more about how you can take the dare, drop by ViennaSDA.org. There you'll find resources to get connected to others like yourself and to help in your spiritual journey.